Welcome, listener. This is the Pick 4 Podcast. I'm your host, Mark. Four, three, two, one. Each week, we pick a topic and then pick our four best answers. You can go to pick4podcast.com for social media outlets to email the show, get a look at the whole show catalog, and get a good look and information on routine guests, which are my friends, and they are all awesome. But for right now, let's go. Hey, welcome again, everybody. This is Mark. I'm your host. Um, We are a member of Let Me Know Productions, which is, having said that with Landry Griffith, Win, Lose, or Tie, hosted by Ty King, our little miniature sister project called Hate Pod, Um, and we are a member of the National Podcast Association, which means almost nothing. Uh, Today... Man, I'm I've been looking forward to this and I'm it's happened suddenly. Uh and I feel like I've put enough work in to be competent. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we're going to find out. Uh my guest today is Jeremy Arnold. Now, Jeremy Arnold is a US Army veteran who for you local folks, uh graduated from Friendship High School in 2005 then attended Lubbock Christian University, where he graduated in 2009, um, and enlisted in the United States Army after that, and then uh, was deployed to Afghanistan in three separate tours. Afghanistan being the hot-button news topic um, on a global scale, wouldn't you say, right now? Yeah, yeah, seems like it. Um, Mindy had, had... Posted on Facebook a while back looking for some new guests. She and Jeremy had chatted a little bit, and Jeremy expressed some interest in coming on. And then he actually reached out to me Monday. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. And, um, of course, this was in the middle of things going terribly south in um, Afghanistan. So I hustled uh, an episode together and invited Jeremy over, and he's agreed to come talk with us. We're going to try to shed some light um, from a – serviceman's perspective during his three tours jeremy tell us a little bit about your time here and then uh what made you decide to go ahead and enlist after lcu uh yeah so um well you know for for those of you the class of 2005 and friendship you may remember me you may not remember me um but um I actually come from a family that has a lot of service members. My dad served in the Air Force for 10 years. My grandpa had been in the Air Force. I have a bunch of uncles and cousins who served in different branches of the military. Um, So growing up, I I always knew that I wanted to join the military. Um, I I just kind of felt that passion to serve because of my family members and because of kind of growing up, I, I was instilled with a lot of love for the country and, you know, had a very patriotic perspective. So I always knew I wanted to join. Um, I actually uh, did not want to go to college out of high school. I actually, oh really? Yeah, I actually really wanted to enlist right out of high school. My dad convinced me otherwise. Um, 
I was worried that the war in Afghanistan was going to be over if I went to college <laughs> and that I would they miss were gonna it. They going to be done, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, little did I know yeah. <laughs> that and, uh, now, yeah. I had plenty of time. But, uh, but yeah, I, I ended up um, going to LCU. And actually, um, when I went to LCU, um, I did ROTC, and it was in conjunction with Texas Tech University. And I went on – I, I kind of competed and got an Army – uh, full ride scholarship to go to school. Oh, awesome! Uh, if it hadn't been for that scholarship, I probably I would not have gone to school at that time for sure. Um, but I got that scholarship, and um, after I graduated LCU, I you know I commissioned as an officer into the army, and uh, and I had uh, um, what they call a service an active duty service obligation of four years. Um, and so yeah, so uh, you know right after LCU, I, I went into the military. How how soon were you in Afghanistan then? <laughs> so I I graduated LCU in I guess it was May of two thousand nine, um, and then I went to the basic officer leadership course at Fort Sill, um, and then I, I finished all of my initial officer training in December. By December of two thousand nine, I was done with all my officer training, and my first duty station was Fort Lee, Virginia. Um, and um, I reported there in January of 2010. And uh, when I first got there, I actually went to my brigade commander. And, and this is not recommended. If you're a brand new second lieutenant in the Army, do not go directly to your brigade commander. That is a no-no. <laughs> I did not know that at the time. But I, <laughs> Nobody told you that beforehand? <laughs> no, I mean, no one really told me that beforehand. I went to him and I just said, hey, sir, um, I want to deploy to Afghanistan. Uh, I want to do convoy security as soon as I can. And uh, it was uh, Colonel uh, Colonel Steve Cherry at the time, and he looked at me and said, "Yep, I got the unit for you." <laughs> and uh, it, it was oh, what was it? It was the end of May, uh, beginning of June. I think beginning of June that I was in Afghanistan. Wow. Uh, so you know that's roughly about a year from when I graduated LCU to finishing all my training and then being in Afghanistan in June of 2010. Um what sort of preparation is there then once you know that you're fixing to go out of the country, what kind of time frame do they give you and what, if anything special do you have to do before you actually get on the plane to, so to fly across? It, it, it all depends. Um, a, a saying in the army is that it, a, a saying that goes on is that it's met TC dependent, which met TC stands for mission enemy time, troop terrain, civilian consideration. Okay. And it's all the things you have to think about before you do a mission. And anytime there's like uncertainty, everyone always says, well, it's met TC dependent. Um, so it, it all depends on the type of unit that you're a part of. It all depends on what your mission is going to be. Um, what the preparation is, is going to be like. Uh, when I got to my unit, we were deploying as a company. So uh, we were roughly uh, about 150 soldiers in this one company that was going to deploy to Afghanistan specifically to do convoy security. And we were going to fall under a battalion command that was already there in country. Um, which, uh, it, typ typically, most units don't deploy in a size that small as just a company. Um, but, um, I, I was in the logistics world, um, and that's kind of how the logistics world does it as compared to like infantry guys or artillery guys. They typically would deploy as brigades, which is a couple levels higher than a company, um, and, and go that route. But the way they do it in the logistics world is, you know, they'll do it in smaller sized units like that. Okay. Um, when I got to the unit, they were already in, uh, kind of this, this training mode for that mission. 
Um, there's a bunch of qualifications that you have to go through before um, you do it. Everyone has to be certified uh, to drive the gun trucks. Everyone has to be certified on all the different types of weapon systems. Um, and then you just uh, do a bunch of uh, different training events to kind of help prepare you. Um, a big threat back then, and, and probably still is, was IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices. Yeah. So we did a lot of training about uh, spotting and detecting and dealing with uh, IEDs. That was a huge portion of, uh, of what we did. Um, we actually even had, uh, there were these civilian contractors who had been active duty military members before who we, they, I, I don't know how they arrange this training, but they, they even took us out to this like specific course and we spent like a whole week with these guys just spotting IEDs and doing all sorts wow. of stuff like that. Um, so it's, um, you know, as you get closer and closer to your departure date, um, you, uh, you know, the training just kind of gets more and more focused and, you know, and, and everyone gets qualified on everything and, you know, and then you go. You and I talked for 15 or 20 minutes there before we ever turned the, the record button on there. Um, what was the, the prevailing uh, attitude among service members when you got there in 2010? Um, so like as far as. You know, everybody had a clear mission, obviously, like within your company yeah. and within your brigade. But the overall outlook, what did, if there was one, I guess. So that that was kind of interesting because 2010 um, was the year of the big surge in Afghanistan where uh, troop levels got up to uh, 100,000 strong in country. Uh, before then, I think the highest they had been was something like, 15 or 20,000 I want to say somewhere around there and the big focus had been Iraq before then um, and we had a bunch of guys in our company who had deployed to Iraq before even guys that had deployed several times to Iraq we didn't have a single guy who had ever deployed to Afghanistan before then um, so this was 2010 Iraq had already been going on for seven years at that point um, Afghanistan was kind of the smaller operation as compared to Iraq back yeah. then um, so we didn't have a single guy who had deployed to Afghanistan, um, you know, and of course I, you know, I came in with no, uh, with no experience, you know, I, I was a brand new second lieutenant, but I had privates who had already deployed to Iraq and had more experience than I did. Um, but you know, that, that's just kind of typically how it goes. Um, what was funny is we, we leaned a lot on our Iraq guys who had deployed to Iraq. Cause it was like, okay, they, they had deployed, they had, you know, been in combat before. So we kind of leaned on them a lot during our training and when we got to Afghanistan, all of our Iraq guys were like, oh, this is way different. Really? <laughs> yeah. This is this is a brand new ball game. So when we being uh, much more serious? Uh just a different type of enemy, a different type of terrain, a different type of fighting style. Um, it was it was new to them. So when we hit okay. the ground, it was like, oh So everybody crap. was sort of everyone was <laughs> everyone new. was everyone new, was new learning. to Afghanistan. Okay. Um, so, so that, that was, that was interesting. Um, it, it, it was an, it was just an interesting development, kind of the perspective of someone who had never deployed before too. the trip to Afghanistan is kind of, uh, crazy. And it's a very long journey where you go from your home station to generally Ireland or Germany. And then from at that point, from like Germany to Kyrgyzstan, 
And as we were flying into the country, this was taking several days. And mm-hmm. a lot of times we didn't even know where we were going when we got on the plane. Yeah. And all of a sudden we landed in Kyrgyzstan. And I literally, you know, they announced, the pilot announced, okay, we just landed in Kyrgyzstan. And I'm like, I've never even heard of Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't point to it on a map. How close are we to Afghanistan? What's going on? A yeah. lot of guys were just like, okay, I guess we're in Kyrgyzstan now. And then we waited in Kyrgyzstan for a couple of days. And a bunch of us who had never deployed before, uh, there was there was a pretty well-established air base that we were at in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and they had phones that we could call back to and stuff. So we were all making like last-minute phone calls to families and stuff before we were getting on the planes. And, you know, my no concept of what was going to happen in Afghanistan. I was making my last phone calls, and I was thinking, okay, the plane's going into Afghanistan. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, you know, the moment we cross into Afghan airspace, we're going to start getting shot at, yeah. you know, what's – you know, just kind of that nervousness that happened. A bunch of us new guys were kind of, you know, none of us were saying stuff like that, but you could tell we were all kind of like feeling it, like what, <laughs> what's going to happen as soon as we get in there. Yeah, the elephant in the room. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. Nobody oh, wants yeah. to say it loud. Yeah. And uh, we land on Bagram Air Base, which was the biggest base that we had in Afghanistan. Um, Bagram was so big. It had tens of thousands of yeah, people it's like on its own it. city. Oh, yeah. It, was, it, was, it had a bus route. It oh, was wow. so big. There was a bus route on Bagram. Um, yeah, it, it's it was huge. Tens of thousands of people, tons of civilians, contractors, military personnel. It it, it was kind of crazy. Um, but the moment we landed on Bagram and we're walking off the plane, Bagram is just completely surrounded by mountains. And I'm looking around and I'm just like, "Wow, we are really in a hole here." Like, yeah. I mean. Sure, I, surely they're watching us. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, they're probably in those mountains right now, just counting us as we get off the plane. I'm yeah. like, this is kind of crazy. And every base is pretty much like that in Afghanistan, where it's just surrounded by high ground. Um, but we we get in, you know, it, it's a brand new environment for all of us. So as as we're kind of, uh, you know, a, as we get there, we're just kind of acclimating ourselves. We're trying to figure out what's going on. We're replacing a unit that's there, so they're kind of teaching us like hey here are the lessons that we learned from the past year of being here and uh you know how long is that overlap uh ours i want to say was like two and a half to three weeks and it's a whole process of signing equipment over doing inventories with them and it kind of culminates in what's called a right seat left seat ride um where basically we go out on a mission like it's half of their guys and half of my guys okay and we go out on a mission and, um, you know, and, and that's kind of the, the culminating event where whenever we're done with that mission, they're pretty much on their plane and they're going home. Um, you know, on my right seat, left seat ride. So I was a platoon leader. I had a platoon of 42 soldiers. Um, we had 12 gun trucks and, you know, we would go out and do convoy security. We actually, um, we got a little bit of action on our right seat ride, which I was kind of happy for because I'm like, okay, we kind of got that out of the yeah. way, <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it happened. We were all good. It was a, you know, it was a little ambush and, you know, we made it through. Everybody was fine. We all acted appropriately. So, you know, it was, it was kind of good to get that out of the way. Yeah. Get, happy knock the happened. new off real quick. And yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, and everybody's the, dialed in. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and the moment, the first time you go outside the wire, which going outside the wire, you, you're leaving the base. Um, your first time, your senses are never more alert in your entire life than your first time going outside the wire. Sure. And all of my guys, we're all on the radio. We're like, Hey, everybody see that rock. Look at that rock. That rock looks suspicious. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, I see the rock. I see the rock. We're calling out everything. You know, we're, you know, we're just eagle eyed looking at everything. And it was probably about, I think it was our third day 
outside the wire when the guy I was replacing, uh, a guy, um, was he, was he, I think, I can't remember if he was a captain at that point. I think he got, I think he was a lieutenant still, but he got promoted shortly after. Uh, but first lieutenant Joel Metcalf, um, he was who I was replacing and, uh, he, he, he was in front of me sitting in the passenger seat on the front side and I was sitting behind him in this gun truck and kind of the, kind of the way our first action happened. I thought he was messing around with me because we were going through this city and all of a sudden he said, Hey, you see that group of guys on the right side of the road? And I'm like, yeah, I see him. And he's like, I, I don't like him. I don't like how that looks. And I'm like, okay, this is our third day driving through Afghanistan. I'm like, I've been seeing. Uh, yeah, how, this. that's what I was going to ask is how many groups of guys have yeah. you seen before? Yeah, we, we, I'd been seeing. It wasn't any, it didn't look out of the ordinary to me at all. He had been there for a year, though. Um, Did he point out what made it different? Uh, I don't think he ever exactly. He just said, I don't like it. He just said, I see that group of guys there. They were all kind of like circled. They do the Afghans do this thing where they squat. They're yeah. all, they're always squatting. They don't really sit down, and they're all just kind of squatting in a circle and talking and stuff. Um, and he just said, I, I don't like it. I don't like the way it looks. And uh, and and in my mind, I'm like, okay, are, are, you're just messing with me. You're just mm -hmm. messing with the new guy. And I'm like, okay, whatever guy. And then five minutes later, everything pops off, and I'm like, oh. Okay, this guy knows what he's talking wow. about. Yeah, he's been here for a year. He he understands and knows when something doesn't look right. So, um, so yeah, so that you know that that was real interesting. But I think getting that first attack out of the way on our first mission kind of really helped the unit and kind of calmed everyone's nerves when we first got there. What's the heaviest action you saw during the first deployment? Um, that was uh, probably uh, just a few months later. We were uh, it was a what we call it was a complex nearside ambush um where we were driving through a small village going from salerno to gosney and uh that whole thing was was interesting um I, i'll go ahead and preface everything with uh it, none of our guys got seriously hurt or anything no kia or anything in this um but as we were driving through this village, we have what's called a scout truck that's out in front of the convoy, and they're kind of our lookout. They go, you know, first through things, and they're they stay typically, you know, 200, 300 meters out in front of the convoy, and they're just kind of looking out. The streets are extremely narrow through these villages, and they're kind of perimetered by these uh, mud huts and mud fences. And as we were, as my scout truck was going through, they just said, "Hey, there's a guy with a donkey cart in the middle of this road." And, you know, he, he just, he looks kind of just weird. Feels wrong. Feels wrong, yeah. And, um, and so they called that out. And so the next gun truck up says, okay, we'll get eyes on them. You know, and they came up and they get eyes on them. And uh, they start going through the town and everything. And then my gun truck was in the middle of the convoy. And as soon as we got into the village, and as soon as I saw that guy, um, I came on the radio and I was like, hey, I, I have eyes on him. I see him. All of a sudden, he just ducks down right behind that cart, just as fast as he can. <laughs> and as soon as I see that, I was just like, oh, crap. Here we go. Yeah. And then uh, an IED goes off uh, right behind my gun truck and, the, and then the gun truck and right behind my gun truck and then one of the civilian trucks that we were escorting. So they managed to – it wasn't a direct hit on the gun truck, which was good. Um, but then uh, from there, typically – when it's an IED, it's just an IED, typically. And it goes off if no one's hurt, if the gun trucks are still running, you just you just keep rolling. Just, yeah. You just keep rolling and rolling. Because they it's 
probably in their game plan for you to stop and go, oh uh, my god, an IED just went off. T- typically, if they can disable a truck, that's good. But really, they they would never really follow up um, after an IED. Like an okay. IED is just like just an IED. If we get a gun, maybe truck, it happens. Great. Maybe it doesn't. If it, yeah, if it happens, it okay. happens. If not, it doesn't. How was that one disguised? Do you remember? It was buried. Yeah. I, they, is that they, the hardest? Oh. kind of fine um it, it 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 depends generally they would put them in culverts on the road and uh kind of funny is before we went they trained us on culverts they said every culvert you got to get out you got to get out when a culvert's coming up you got to look inside the culvert and see if you see any ieds in there mm-hmm. our very first day driving through it's like okay there's a million culverts <laughs> in this country we can't stop at we're every in culvert, culvert city yeah <laughs> And just look at all these things. So we were very quickly, we were just like, okay, we, you know, we can't stop at every single one. Um, sometimes they would bury them. If, uh, if they bury them, sometimes you can see command wire, just wire coming out mm-hmm. and running off to a place and running to whoever's the trigger man. Um, sometimes you can see it. Sometimes you can't. Um, if it's buried, you know, that's a good indicator that there's one buried there. Um, we just, we just didn't see any indicators that one was there and it was buried, but, uh, you know, Luckily, it wasn't a direct hit, and we were in pretty, uh, we were in MRAPs, which were mine resistant, armored protected, or mine resistant ambush protected vehicles, very heavily armored vehicles, specifically designed to take For IED that reason. hits. Yeah, it's yeah. very, yeah. They have like this V shaped hole bottom that is like designed to deflect the blast. If, if the hmm. blast, uh, you know, if you get a hit, it's like a whole thing designed for IEDs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, that one, they, they followed that one. Up. What, what was unique about this was that they followed it up with a bunch of small arms fire and some RPGs. So, uh, the small arms fire and RPGs happen. And when that happened, uh, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're for about a minute, we were kind of in a stalemate where we were trying to push through this very small village, uh, with like 40 vehicles in this convoy. And they are in elevated positions that are firing down on us. We have gunners who are, you know, needing to duck down and then return fire and, you know, and, and just work our way through. So for about a minute, um, you know, we're, we're just trying to push through and it's just, you know, exchanging fire left and right like crazy. Um, after about a minute, uh, you know, we were able to get our gun trucks into positions where our 50 caliber guns were firing. Once our 50 caliber guns had locks on where they were firing from, you know, no one, no one wants to stand there and shoot once a 50 cal starts yeah. going off. <laughs> no, no one. And it's time to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Typically once you have three 50 caliber machine guns that are all firing at you, you don't want to stick around. Mm-hmm. So after about a minute, we were able to gain fire superiority. Um, and luckily none of their RPGs hit and, uh, and we were able to make it through the village and, and go, but that was probably the heaviest firefight that we had. Is the idea when something like that starts to occur, is it, are you trying to just let's plow through and return fire as we're mm-hmm. traveling through? Or do you actually make a point to stop and maybe kind of gain control of what's going on and then advance through? That's met TC dependent. Okay. <laughs> so uh, with us, since we were convoy security, um, we weren't going to pursue these guys. We, it wasn't our mission to go out and pursue them. You know, we're calling QRF and hope for quick reaction force and maybe quick reaction force can get out there and maybe pursue them. Uh, but our job was to protect our trucks, our supply trucks that we're escorting through. And we're just trying to get them through the kill zone and get them into a safe spot. Um, in that village, typically what we would have, uh, well, if we were in an open area and not in that village, 
the like my gun truck would have pulled off to the side of the road and just stayed there and engaged in a stationary spot while the rest of the convoy rolls through. Okay. But since we were in such a small village, we, you know, there's no room to maneuver. There's no room to do any of that. So it's just like everyone has to push through. Hot-tailed. Yeah. And we got to get through the kill zone, you know, as, as quick as we can. Was this 2010 or 11? Do you remember? That was 2010. Okay. So yeah, as I look through a bunch of Afghanistan stuff over the course of the last day and a half, 2010 uh un numbers say that the taliban and their allies were responsible for 76 percent of civilian casualties uh in 2010 and 2011 so they weren't i I just still have a hard time believing that these guys have the best intentions for uh, even standard afghani men Uh, the, the taliban yeah i you know, it's, it's, and, and I've done a little bit, I, I'm, I'm a history guy too. So I've, you know, I've done some research into some history and looked into it on a, not on a too in-depth level, but I mean, the people of Afghanistan um, are just in a sad, sad situation and it's the poverty of the country. It is an insanely impoverished country. Um, even even for a a Southwest Asia Islamic country, they're they're even poor for those standards, um, and it is such they are they are just used to chaos. They've been used to chaos for decades, decades, yeah. even centuries in the country, really. That um, honestly, I I think the Afghans, the average Afghan person and family, they're just trying to get by. They don't care. Who's in control? They don't care if the U.S. is in control. I don't think they care if the Taliban is in control. They're just like, yeah, I'm I just trying to I read something about that today, that that was kind of the it, – it's hard to get any kind of, like, polling information. Like, you can't just walk out and ask a thousand Afghanis, you know, <laughs> what are you looking for from your from your government? Yeah. <laughs> so the, the few people that they'd gotten to talk to, and not that it was even a direct answer, but the idea was they're okay with just – sort of a, a something being the same every day like control in one form or another whether it's you know the communist government from the 70s or the Taliban or actual elected officials like just somebody be in charge and kind of tell us how to how to go about things and let's make a day-to-day routine like we have for you know decades like you centuries even i i don't even think that's so probably a lot of that polling happens in the cities and in my mind there's only really two cities in afghanistan and that's kabul and kandahar both of those cities they are the closest that we would see to anything that's and it's not even modern but the closest thing we would see to modernity in that country is, is in kabul and kandahar but like the the moment you go a mile outside either of those cities it's a completely different country um, it, it really is. Um, I think the only real people that wanted the U S to help Afghanistan lived in the cities. Anyone living outside the cities just didn't, didn't care. care. I think the people living inside the cities probably, they, they wanted, they're like, yeah, we, we, you know, we want to develop, we want to improve the country, but people living outside of those cities, I, I, they've been 
hurting. Well, those developments weren't going to affect them one no. way or the other. Oh, they, no, yeah. no. They, they'd, and, you know, they, they might in the long run if they actually allowed it to develop, but they don't see it. They don't understand yeah. how development would help them. And they're just herding sheep like their ancestors have been doing for hundreds of years. You know, they just they just herd their sheep and, and they, they go out and do that. Um, you know, it, it was it was it was very distinct. I don't this was very early on in the deployment. But um, so I, I before I even went to Afghanistan, I didn't even know what the Taliban flag looked like. I didn't even realize they had a flag. And this was probably like our second or third mission outside the wire. We were going through this very small village and all of a sudden all, all through this village, there were just white flags everywhere. Legitimately, at the time, I had no idea that that was a Taliban symbol, and I'm just looking around like, "What is going on with all these white flags?" What sports team is that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm like, "Are they surrendering? Are yeah. they what? Like, what is happening?" And um, I, I sent this. So there, you have in your truck, you have this thing called a BFT, and it's hooked up to a satellite, and you can talk to your battalion headquarters back, you know, where on Bagram. And um, I sent a quick sit rep situation report back to battalion i'm like hey here's a note for you know the s2 the intelligence officer i'm like um there's a bunch of white flags in this city i don't know what's going on but there's just white flags everywhere like almost every house just had a white flag out um and i never got a response from battalion whenever i sent that message and when i came back <laughs> on the bagram like two or three days later you always meet with the S2, the intelligence officer, and you kind of debrief with him what you saw and stuff like that. And the intelligence was like, he was just like, oh, yeah, that meant they were loyal to the Taliban. And I'm just like, wait, Maybe what? Maybe I'd answer you because <laughs> in his mind, that's something you probably would have known already anyway. I, or? I don't know. Maybe. Um, you know, it, it's something I never – I don't ever remember a brief on that. Maybe it's something I should have known. But either way, he was just like, oh, yeah, that just means they're loyal to the Taliban. Hmm. I'm like – how many of these towns am I going through that we know yeah. we're loyal to the Taliban? Like, is that something I should be aware of? He's like, and he just said, he said, if you're not in Kabul and if you're not in Kandahar, those towns are probably just loyal to the Taliban. Yeah. yeah, just expect it. Wow. Okay, so we mentioned some history. So let's kind of uh, best we can go back a little bit yep. and, and give some background. Um, the British were there back in uh, the turn of the century. That didn't work out. Nope. Let's scoot up to the point where the Soviets decided to invade Afghanistan in 79. Uh, that was sort of in the middle of some party rifts because they had uh, installed a, a communist government. Um, within that government, uh, they had a... I could never find what his actual title was. It just said second in command. Uh, he gave an order to uh, have an, another high-ranking official assassinated, and the threat was, from the Soviets' perspective, that uh, the government of of Afghanistan is fixing to flip, and, and instead of being kind of loyal with the Soviets, they're going to go ahead and flip and be loyal to the Americans now. So the Soviets said, let's cut this off. That's what started the invasion that was not received well worldwide. Um, the The Olympics in 1980 were in yep. Moscow. 65 countries ended up not going, yep. us included. They uh, once the Soviets are there, they install their own party loyalist, uh, and this was by the Brezhnev Doctrine. Uh, Brezhnev what? He wrote this this doctrine, and, and it basically says a threat to the party anywhere uh, is going to deserve some kind of swift reaction. 
regardless of whether it's in Russia or not. So they install the uh, party loyalist, loyalist, sorry. Um, and now this starts a decades-long war with the tribesmen, um, the Mujahideen. Uh, these are the tribalists who are waging jihad. Is that correct? Uh, I, I pro- uh, they would probably describe it that way. But yeah, the Mujahideen, which turned into the Northern Alliance, they would probably describe it as jihad, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, through the, it, it was a decade-long occupation, really. Uh, there's rough estimates Somewhere between 500,000 and 2 million Afghanis were killed um, by the Soviets. That's roughly somewhere either somewhere between 6.5 and 11% of the entire population. The U.S., Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, United Kingdom, Egypt, and China all funded the Mujahideen in an effort to kind of just string the Soviets along. For several reasons, the Soviets went ahead. I think they sort of got to the point that they realized it was maybe unwinnable. I I, I mean, so there's there's a a book that I honest I've only read excerpt, excerpts out of this book, but it's called "The Bear Went Over the Mountain," um, which is about the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. Um, that will kind of go into the military aspect of it. Um, I. Th- think their withdrawal was just that I, I think at that point too when they decided to withdraw there was so much internal conflict going on inside of um, of the um, Soviet Empire that was failing that it's kind of like okay you know we need to deal a lot with this and Afghanistan has kind of just been this sideshow that we'll just cut ties with yeah I think at some point as well and plus just you know with the American involvement at that point too they probably just didn't see it as worth it okay so Soviets leave in 89. Um, then the Afghan Civil War fills in there from 89 to about 96. And the Taliban started as a militia in 94, and they ended up actually taking control of the government there in 96. Is that correct? Uh, to your knowledge? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, about that time. The word Taliban means... Students, students yep. or seekers, um, and it is a, an Islamist movement and military organiza- organization ex- sort of exclusive to Afghanistan. So it's it's not the same as uh, ISIL, ISIS. Um, Al-Qa- is Al-Qaeda, do they float kind of between Pakistan, Afghanistan? It, I mean, it's, the, I don't I'm not entirely sure about the structure of Al of Al Qaeda, but Al Qaeda, you know, Al Qaeda isn't necessarily associated with it, it. It's not a uniformed military, and it's not associated with any you know straight government. Like, um, you know, the, the Taliban was the government of Afghanistan. Yeah, they have they were the governmental goals. Yeah, and they yeah. were the uniformed military. You know of. Of, of Afghanistan, whereas Al Qaeda was a straight terrorist network that operated in cells, but obviously had a bunch of aligned and shared goals with the Taliban and fundamentalist Islamic movements. And so Al Qaeda had a safe harbor in Afghanistan to train and to conduct whatever operations they wanted to conduct. So Al Qaeda kind of universally is considered a terrorist organization. Yeah. Why is the Taliban not? 
I think it's because the Taliban are limited to Afghanistan. Their their they their goal was Afghanistan. Their goal was um, as far as I know, their goal was you know we just want Afghanistan. Whereas Al Qaeda was like, well, we want to terrorize the world. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Taliban was in control of Afghanistan from ninety six to two thousand one. That's when uh, we, the U S, got there after September eleventh. Um, Taliban they enforce Sharia law, which you you've heard that a lot probably over the course of the yep. last twenty years now. Um, it's discriminatory against really everyone except for Taliban males. Would you say that's correct? Uh, I, I would say it's even discriminatory it, it, depending on your definition of discriminatory. Um, I, I think it's discriminatory towards everyone, even, even Taliban males. It's, it's restricted to them. Um, and Afghanistan is such a weird place. A lot of people, because of it's Islamic now, a lot of people tie Afghanistan to the Middle East. It's actually technically not part of the Middle East. It's Southwest Asia. Okay. Um, they were a majority Buddhist country for a very long time before they became yeah. Islamic. Um, wasn't was there a a war over that? Do you know when that? I've, I well, remember reading that, and I did not write that down because there is just a plethora of information oh, yeah. about well, Afghanistan. When the Taliban took control of Afghanistan, they actually blew up. I think it was it might have been the largest Buddhist yeah, statue, the, if if not the largest, one of the largest Buddhist statues in the world. Buddhas of Banyan, Banyan. Yeah, yeah, something like. And they they just went through and destroyed all of it. Um, the because and I say that to say this, um, the culture of Afghanistan doesn't necessarily line up with Islam, with the culture of Islam. There, there's a lot of differences that kind of clash. Um, well, I've read lots of things that uh, sort of define being an Islamist as one thing and being Muslim and practicing Islam as something completely different. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I, and and I don't know all of the nuances of. You know, it, it may be some, you know, you know, there's kind of like Christianity in the U.S., you know, there's Christians in the U.S. who may not necessarily be going to church every Sunday. And then you have Christians who are going to church every Sunday, Wednesday, and every time the doors are open. You yeah. know, it, it, I don't know if that's comparable or not. I really don't. Um, I do know that, you know, the, the Taliban is basically a very fundamental, strict type of Islam, whereas the culture of Afghanistan ne wasn't necessarily a strict type of Islam. Um, and a lot of that has to do with it. There's just so many different tribes and cultures that are in Afghanistan that pre-exist Islam. Well before Islam mm -hmm. was established yeah. in Afghanistan, these cultures and tribes exist in Afghanistan that they still affiliate with and that they still uh, live by. Um, there's Uzbeks, Tajiks, um, Pashtuns, and, and just, I, I, I can't, I, I can't even name all of them. Yeah, I can't even name all of them. Um, and just that culture doesn't necessarily, and I think that was a big thing with the Taliban was that we were going to make Afghanistan a fundamental Islamist country when it really wasn't at the time. Um, one, one interesting I point out to people, and, and this is in no way a defense of the Taliban, by the way, but one thing I point out um, to people who really, and this is a big thing that I find a lot of people don't know, uh, and this is a terrible, part of the culture of Afghanistan is... Um, is they they have this tradition i don't even know how it started or why it still exists um 
of, of basically child molestation. It, it, it's a cultural thing in Afghanistan. One big gripe that the people of Afghanistan had against the Taliban was that the Taliban outlawed that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, in no way is that a defense of the Taliban. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's like, <laughs> oh, man. At least That's they don't molest up. kids. Yeah, at least the <laughs> Taliban isn't, you know, is is not molesting children. Good grief. Um, so, so there, there's there's just the culture of Afghanistan versus Islam is a whole topic in and of itself. Uh, part of that, the Sharia law, uh, girls ten or older don't go to school anymore. Women can't work outside of healthcare, and the only thing they can do there is treat other women. Uh, Women must be escorted by male relatives and are whipped and even es- executed if they uh, break any of these rules. Yes. Sounds, sounds par for the course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, okay, so you come home in 2011. Yes. Um, then we redeploy in 2013. Yes. Uh, so in between 2011 and 2013, I actually I got married about a month after I came home from Afghanistan um, to my wonderful wife, Cassie Arnold. Um, so uh, Cassie, thanks for sharing Jeremy this evening. <laughs> um, so uh, so that was a big highlight. And then I um, I was also promoted to captain during that time, right before that deployment to 2013. And then in 2013, uh, I deployed to Kandahar, which is the southern part of Afghanistan, um, as a uh, basically as a brigade staff officer within uh, the logistics element of a, of you know, of uh, of the fourth of the fourth infantry division that was operating in Afghanistan at that time. What um, what are the differences geographically between? Where you were in 2010 and 11 and where you were in 2013? Um, a little. So in southern Afghanistan, it was uh, there were still mountains in, Af- in southern Afghanistan, but um, um, more arid, more deserty in southern Afghanistan versus where I was at Bagram um, prior to. Um, so kind of the terrain was a little bit different. Um, villages, however, were still typically set up the same. Um, and then on that deployment too, I really wasn't going outside the wire a whole lot. I was a brigade staff officer. So I spent most of my time actually just on Kandahar airfield, um, organizing and planning, um, you know, uh, all sorts of operations and things that we were doing with the brigade and division. Um, so a big thing in 2013 was the drawdown. So with 2010, 2011 was the big surge. And then by 2013, um, I think we had... I think we were down to less than 60, 50,000 soldiers in country at that point. So we were, we were drawing down pretty heavily. Pretty, yeah, that's pretty rapid. Yeah. We're going from 100,000 plus to 50 to 60 now in a two-year span. Yeah. And in 2013, uh, we, were also, we were shutting down bases left and right, too. And in addition to getting troops out, we were, sh- we were shutting down bases. And in 2013, um, while I was there, we shut down 21 uh, forward operating bases that were there in Afghanistan at the time. Um, and the big thing, and you and I kind of talked about this beforehand. Uh, so a, a big thing that this was not really talked about or really stated, obviously. Um, but it was clear that the administration at that time wanted to end the war in Afghanistan before that administration's time was up. Um, that was never just 
obligatorily stated, yeah. you know, in our meetings or plannings or anything like that. But it was like, yeah, you know, he wants yeah, to everybody can see the signs. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, so so that so that was the big thing. We were still do, conducting combat operations, but by that time, we already knew when our offensive combat operations were going to be over. Like we we already knew the date; it was already scheduled in our head. We I don't nothing like that was broadcasted, but we all knew when it was coming. And uh, kind of everything was centered around that uh, stop of offensive combat operations at that point. So drawing down and then just getting ready to, to go into what was called train, advise, and assist mode, where we were training, advising, and assisting the Afghan National Army and trying to get them ready to start operating on their own. Okay, we've already talked about it a little bit, but uh, <laughs> talk a little about maybe some of their outlooks. Um as far as the Afghan National Army? Yeah. Um, so I I don't know any veteran who has the position back then, now, or even at any point during the war that said, oh, yeah, the Afghan National Army can handle this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, at we, any point no, of the— of at, Yeah, at any point, no one was like, oh, yeah, US they, occupation. Oh, yeah they got this. Yeah. They got No one said that. And, and we all openly talked about, yeah, they don't have this. And as soon as we leave, they're going to get taken over. And really, would you say it's through no fault of their own? Uh, they receive <sighs> next to no support? Um, this, so so this is my, and in, in I'll, I'll, you know, I'm not on active duty. I, I left the military at the end of 2015. So, you know, I'm, I'm no, you know, my opinions are not that of the U.S. Army, <laughs> the DOD, or the United States government. <laughs> so I'll just throw yeah. that out there. This is all my personal opinion. Um, I, the AF, and this kind of goes into the poverty of the country, and this kind of goes into the mindset of the country. Um, they did not have the will to continue on with the operation. The, the general people of Afghanistan, the majority of people in Afghanistan, just did not have the will um, to do it. And you can kind of blame them. You kind of can't blame them because, I, I, you know, I've kind of thought about this in my mind. When you're just struggling to survive day to day, as a lot of Afghans do, um, you know, you, you don't care. It's like, you know... That freedom, open elections, and all that stuff, that's all fine and dandy. But if I don't know where my next meal is coming from, what do I care yeah, about the next presidential election? Centuries and, and millennia even of oh, yeah. existence. Yeah. Uh, struggling to exist. Yeah, I'm just struggling to exist, you know. Higher ideals of democracy and liberty and freedom. Yeah, it, was... it just it just it's not a priority for yeah. you. Um, a lot of people that joined the Afghan National Army that I saw um, I, I, by and large, the country is not literate. They can't read. Um, they speak different types of languages. So there, there is no cohesive language. Mm -hmm. It's very tribal. So a lot of people don't want to work with tribes <laughs> that may be adversaries. So yeah. a lot of people that joined the Afghan national army were kind of just seeing it as a paycheck. They were just like, Oh man, you know, I can join this thing and I get a paycheck and a lot of times when it was kind of push come to shove with a lot of these units, they just wouldn't perform. It, it kind of like what we've been seeing the past week. You know, the moment mm -hmm. the Taliban show up, it's like, I'm, I'm out of here. This Bye isn't guys. worth it. Yeah, yeah, this isn't worth it for me. You know, I'm just kind of here for the paycheck, um, you know, and, and they take off. Um, 
so that that's why a lot of people are like, it's no surprise that you know they're they're not going to be doing this. And on top of that, too, the Afghan National Army, while we were conducting, while we were there in country, they benefited from all of our support. So even though in 2014 is when we stopped our own offensive operations, we were still supporting the Afghan National Army. Mm-hmm. So they were still dependent on our air support. They were still dependent on you know on our special forces guys that were going out with them. They were defend, they were dependent on our money and our equipment and all of that. So even though we, we weren't going out and performing offensive operations ourselves, we still supported them and we still helped them out. And when they were left to defend the country along with our support, it was really a stalemate between them and the Taliban. Whereas before, um, you know, when we were conducting offensive operations, the Taliban never wanted to fully engage us. They they very rarely did. And even when they would come out in force to engage us, we still beat the crap out of them. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, I mean, um, oh my gosh, what was that movie that just came out? No, I can't even remember it. Um, the Outpost uh, that came oh, I out, I think, that. last year. Um, it was all about a real attack that happened at the end of 2009 on a base in eastern Afghanistan where it was a platoon, I think, of about basically 50 American soldiers that were engaged with like 400-something Taliban soldiers. And uh, the Taliban had every advantage in that fight. They had the element of surprise. They had the high ground. uh, They had overwhelming firepower. And, uh, you know, those guys still defended their position and still beat the crap out of those Taliban fighters. Um, And that's just what happens when they fight the Americans. They know they can't take us on. But when it's just the Afghans, you know... they're not scared of the Afghans. The Taliban's scared of the Americans. Yeah. No. Uh, okay, so drawdown is happening in 2013. Mm-hmm. You get done and come back home. How did you spend the next year there? Um. So in 2013, uh, we I came home at the end of 2013, and then I took command of a company um, right, right whenever I came home. I was actually planning to get out of the Army in uh whenever i came back from that deployment and i had a brigade commander um colonel johnson i don't know if you're going to listen to this but colonel johnson convinced me to stay in and take command in his brigade um so uh even though he was leaving brigade command at that time so he he was out the door but he still convinced (laughs) me to stay in his brigade and take command when he was not going to be there (laughs) so uh so i i stayed uh i stayed in the brigade and and took command of a company and uh Throughout uh, 2014 and into early 2015, I, I was in command of a company. Um, so uh, we never deployed while I was in command of that company. And we, we basically did, you know, I, I was in, we, we trained, you know, we trained up for deployment and, and you know, just kind of did basic what we call, um, um, oh my gosh, this is how long I've been out of the Army now. Um, but basically, you know, uh, Oh my gosh. Garrison. That's the word I'm looking for. Basically garrison operations, which is, you know, what you do when you're not deployed. Um, and then the end, uh, my time in command is over. And, uh, when that was over, uh, I ended up deploying again. (laughs) Is that your decision? Um, no, (laughs) 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 but I, I ended up deploying again as a liaison officer, uh, to Northern Afghanistan. So, um, so I didn't even really deploy with a unit. I kind of just deployed, um, to fill, uh, this slot of, um, uh, of a captain who had been there, uh, previously. 
And uh, I actually worked as a liaison officer in northern Afghanistan, a place called Camp Marmal, which is outside of Mazar al-Sharif in northern Afghanistan. Um, so uh, that was actually a really that would that was probably the most interesting deployment I had, though. And I'm actually really glad I went on that deployment uh, with just I, it was very different uh, from any of my other deployments. And I got to work with uh, the ANA and I got to work with Jairoa, which is which was the uh, the government of Afghanistan. And uh, I worked a little bit with uh, the governor of Balkh province, a guy named Adam Muhammad Noor, um, who had been a Mujahideen fighter. And um, oh, really? Yeah, and and uh, and um, that he's a very interesting fellow. <laughs> um, so uh, so that that was a very interesting deployment, and that was in 2015. Um, it was actually mid to late 2015, um, and. Uh, that was an interesting time because we were done with offensive operations and we were just doing training, advise, and assist missions. Still? Still. And um, at that point, while I was there, the Taliban actually took over the city of Kunduz, which is in northern Afghanistan. And uh, we worked with the 209th Afghan Corps on basically a plan to retake the city of Kunduz, which uh, which they went out and did. Um but uh, but yeah, that that was a very interesting time. And Adam Mohammed Noor, uh, so he was the governor of Balkh province. Do you, is this an elected position, or considering he's Mujahideen, or so I I believe he was elected. Now he was ousted um, after I, after I had left. I think in 2018 he had kind of been ousted from the position, but then he kind of refused to give it up. <laughs> and there, there's an interesting thing. So. He was a Mujahideen fighter, and there's a guy who, I guess, was. He's no longer is because of everything that just happened. But he, the vice president of Afghanistan was a guy named Dostum. Him and Dostum kind of had their own internal war going on. <laughs> they had both been Mujahideen <laughs> fighters. They had both basically been warlords. And they had their own private armies and were fighting each other. Um, yeah, being a warlord is like a real thing in oh, Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. Adenor has his own private army. <laughs> Dostum has his own private army. It's kind of a crazy thing. Um, both of them actually fled. I, I was actually looking up some stories on them. They both fled to Uzbekistan um, when Mazar-e Sharif was falling. Um, so it's interesting that they're both there. In Uz- I, 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 it's to me, it's funny because it's like they both fled to Uzbekistan, and I'm like. I wonder if they're still fighting each other in Uzbekistan <laughs> or not. You know? They live next door to each other and still hate each other's guts. <laughs> I think that's prob- that probably very much is the case. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was an interesting time. Uh, okay, I'll, I, I mentioned to you before we recorded that in 2019, the Washington Post uncovered some uh, internal documents between the military and, and some government officials that basically declared that time in Afghanistan has become unwinnable, and that and that's their word, not not mine. Yeah. Um. As a service member who served multiple tours in Afghanistan, what are your feelings towards hearing that statement, and then? Th- Talk a little bit about your thoughts about how the last week has gone there. Like, what do you feel now, having seen how it's played out? The way that the U.S. government chose to fight the war in Afghanistan um, made it unwinnable. Um, If we wanted to, we could win that thing. The military 
the U.S. military in Afghanistan was extremely dominant in everything that we did. Um, there, there was no operation that we could not conduct. There was um, no place we could not go. We could maneuver anywhere that we wanted to. We could engage the enemy anywhere we wanted to in Afghanistan. Um, what really was unwinnable was the way they chose to fight the war, which is really uh, the Taliban decided to wait us out which is a very easy strategy to do when we're unwilling to go into Pakistan where the Taliban is hid and parts of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan where they would go hide. We couldn't go get them. And I understand the reasons why we couldn't go get them because it, it goes into a whole foreign yeah, relation debacle. Diplomacy issue Yeah, diplomacy there. and all sorts of issues that I'm sure played into it. Um, had... The U.S. government chose, and I don't know if this had been would have been disastrous, to, you know, diplomatic wise or not. I don't know how the State Department and diplomats and operate really. So I don't know what the implications would have been, and I'm sure there were valid reasons to not go into those countries. But had we just said, you know what, we're going to pursue the Taliban wherever they are, no matter what country they are in, and we went into those countries, um, we we I think we very easily could have completely destroyed them, um, but we chose not to. And by choosing not to go after them in those countries, they, they waited us out. Um, it, it's a very simple, easy strategy that they did. Uh, so, uh, so with that, um, and, and kind of, and we kind of talked about Pakistan a little bit too. Um, Pakistan typically operated as our ally during this conflict. There, there were some issues that had flared up, you know, during it. They didn't like that we did not tell them that we were going after Osama bin Laden when yeah. we did that raid. <laughs> Um, you know, in 2010, there was an incident where I guess we did a drone strike in Pakistan and all of our supplies actually came through Karachi in Pakistan at the port of Karachi. They would travel through Pakistan and then we would pick them up at the border and bring them onto the bases. And after that drone strike in Pakistan, they didn't like that and they shut down that supply route. So, you know, there were, there were stuff that would flare up like that. Um, but for the most part, I, Pakistan was operating as an ally, but there are ungoverned parts of Pakistan in Western Pakistan on the border with Afghanistan. It's like this ungoverned tribal region. And that's where the Taliban had safe haven because the Pakistani government doesn't really govern those areas and they really can't because they're controlled by all these tribes that are there in Pakistan. So that's where the Taliban had refuge. Um, you know, and that's where Osama bin Laden had refuge all those years as well. So it, it's, it's, um, I, I don't know all the nuances of that relationship, but I do know, uh, you know, Pakistan doesn't necessarily have full control over their own, co their own country. So does it, the terrain dictate that a lot? Pro it, it's probably a lot of terrain. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it's similar to Afghanistan, where it's extremely mountainous, extremely hard to maneuver. Um, I'm sure Pakistan. You know, uh, they probably had a little bit more modern military than most regions in that area, but. Uh, even even for the U.S. military, it could be hard for us to maneuver in Afghanistan. So, you know, a country with a lesser equipment and lesser capability than the U.S. military would have probably in exponential trouble trying to get through that region. I, I don't know, exactly know why they can't govern those regions, but I know they're they're kind of ungoverned regions of Pakistan. Do you feel? Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, but is there a, a feeling of disappointment for how Afghanistan has now turned out? So I think what's kind of been echoed and I generally how I feel. And I think how a lot of Afghan veterans feel, um, 
is that we are disappointed with how things have turned out this past week with the Afghan National Army falling away and with the Taliban completely taking over the country, more or less. Um, it's definitely disappointing. It's disappointing to see. It's very disappointing. At the same time, I also think that there's generally a feeling of most Afghan veterans recognize we can't be there forever. We, we, we just couldn't be there forever. And at some point, the people of Afghanistan were going to have to stand on their own. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of depends on what your uh, what people's personal goals are with foreign U.S. policy. You know, do if if we had a real if you felt a real commitment to Afghanistan, then we need to stay there. If we stay in Afghanistan, if we keep a military presence in Afghanistan, that helps stabilize the government we set up and gives them a chance. If we leave Afghanistan like what we just did, then th there's there's no chance. That's the simple math of it. Yeah. Um, so it's disappointing to see, um, but it's like, how, how long do you want to stay there? We, you know, and you know what? If the U.S. chose, yeah, you know what? We're going to stay there. We're going to see this thing through. Um, then it would take a very long commitment, and the people of America would have to recognize, understand, and commit to a very long commitment to Afghanistan in order to stabilize it. It would take decades more to stabilize that country. And um, trillions of dollars. And yeah, and even more money. And if that's the commitment the people of the U.S. wanted to do, then you know that's that's what it takes, and they need to understand that. Yeah. Um, but I think it seems like the feeling of the U.S. It's like, okay, you know, how much longer are we going to stay there? You know. And I think people were were kind of getting tired of all the money being spent there, of you know, um, casualties in Afghanistan have gone down exponentially over the past few years. You know, because we don't do offensive combat operations more. Um, so, but we were still losing guys, not near as much as what we were, you know, in 2010, 2011, but we were still losing guys and, you know, people were kind of tired, I guess, of seeing, yeah, you it's, know, it's still, di still disappointing, yeah. particularly when there's not a clear goal. Exactly. Yeah. No. Okay. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I mean, uh, no, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate, well, I appreciate uh, you having the opportunity. Reaching out, and I'm, I'm glad that we got to do this. I've been looking forward to it since you reached out to me Monday. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important for everybody who listens to get some perspective about what you actually saw and experienced, and and what they're being told through media outlets and. Sometimes, sometimes those things are conflicting, and sometimes there's just not enough information to draw a good conclusion. Yeah. So I appreciate your time. Yeah. And thank yeah. you for your service. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, let's. Uh, let me get over here and start this exit music. Um. Appreciate everybody checking in this week. Um. Again, listen to uh, Having Said That with Landry Griffith, Win, Lose, or Tie, hosted by Ty King. Go to pick4podcast.com and go click on some stuff, and we'll come deliver you something awesome next week also. Appreciate it. 